Welcome to our podcast episode on immunotherapy treatment and biomarker testing for metastatic cervical cancer. I am your host, Anna Christofidis. Our guest for this episode is Dr. James Bentley, who is a professor and head of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Dalhousie University, Halifax, Canada. Dr. Bentley is past president of the International Federation of Cervical Pathology and Colposcopy and the Society of Canadian Colposcopists. He is also past president of the Society of Gynecologic Oncology of Canada. He serves on numerous national and provincial committees involved with cervical cancer screening and gynecological cancer. Hope you enjoy it. So thanks so much, Dr. Bentley, for joining us today to discuss immunotherapy treatment and biomarker testing for the treatment of metastatic cervical cancer. So to start, I wanted to ask, what is the standard treatment for recurrent or metastatic cervical cancer, and how effective is it really? First of all, thank you for inviting me to be part of this, this uh, series of talks. A pleasure to be with you. So currently, I mean, we've evolved over the years. In the years I've been in practice, I've almost gone from very little therapy to you know, offering cisplatinum alone, and more recently, everybody getting carboplatin and, and paclitaxel uh, as their standard of therapy. There were trials done that sort of looked at the increased survival with all of these uh, different modalities. And we saw that so with cisplatinum alone, you had a 20% response rate and a progression-free survival of uh, between 2 and 3.2 months and overall survival of up to 8 months. And then you added in cisplatinum and paclitaxel and uh, the response rate went up to nearly 30%, 29%, but the overall survival only went up to 12.8 months. So there was a doubling of that with a, a platinum and a taxane. Um, and in, in reality, because of the toxicity profile, most of us would use carboplatin as a replacement for cisplatin and using standard gynecological doses for these drugs. I see. Thank you so much. And has there any been any sort of improvement with the addition of bevacizumab to therapy? So the standard of care was sort of was was changed a little bit with with the addition of bevacizumab into the armamentarium. So bevacizumab to carboplatinum and, and taxol, um, and when we sort of had a a trial where we looked at adding it in, it did improve the outcome. In in that trial, which was led by Tawari et al, um, they they saw that the uh, overall survival advantage did, did increase by about another three months. Sort of so it did improve the progression free survival and the overall survival. The challenge is with that is that the toxicity of therapy can be significant in the previously irradiated patient population. Whereas in the trial, they saw sort of fistula rates of GI and genital urinary rates together of about uh, 3%, uh, I would suggest that most of us in our clinical practice see that as a, uh, at a higher rate. And trying to treat fistulas post-radiation in a patient with a recurrent disease is a very challenging situation and affects patients' quality of life significantly. This is on top of the hypertension, which occurs about 25% in the proteinuria. Um, so uh, I think it was a high dose of bevacizumab, but uh, we, we sort of may, may modify that. But uh, that gives us a little bit of pause in these patients. That seems very challenging. And it does seem like that might be an unmet need for patients. Are there any other unmet needs that come to mind? And then how do you think the treatment could be further improved? Well, it totally is an unmet need. This is a disease that affects young women and there's a lot of lives, year lives lost because of recurrent cervical cancer. And we've all dealt with patients in their 20s 
hopefully going away because of vaccination, but we're still going to have cervical cancer around for many, many years. And as I said, these are young patients, and when they recur, it can be very painful. And anything that will improve the outcome is, is really a welcome addition to our armamentarium. So uh, when people started looking at the addition of immunotherapy to this, uh, that was that was very hopeful. Um, I mean, there are groups that have looked at adding longer duration of chemotherapy, such as the Outback trial, that didn't really help anything after, after standard radiation therapy. So new drugs are very, very, very welcome in this disease. Yeah. And so what is the rationale for targeting the PD-1, PDL one pathway to treat patients with cervical cancer? So there are people that have speculated that cervical cancer as a infectious disease caused cancer, which obviously has an, an HPV virus and your body's immune response to that virus and how it allows that to actually take hold, translates into the immune system being activated. And would checkpoint immune modulation really be useful in that setting? Having said that, one Keynote 158 trial was a basket trial. So we do know that pembrolizumab was active in, in many different situations, but it obviously did seem to be active in this setting. So what percentage of cervical cancer patients do you expect to be positive with the 2-2-C3 clone? And how can you monitor this key parameter as well? So when you're looking at immunotherapy, and I don't really know all of the background of all of the other disease sites, but obviously uh, the PD-1 score um, and assessment is an integral part of seeing who is eligible for this therapy. And it's, that's part of looking at, if, is this some sort of personalized medicine, uh, which uh, could allow us to tailor the chemotherapy we use to the patient that has the disease. So when people have looked at this, they looked at the PDL one count and scored that on the uh, combined positive score, CPS score, greater than one and greater than 10. And that is what is reported in the trials. And, and as the score goes up, the, the response is better. The Keynote 158, the original phase two basket trial, had a um, smaller number of patients, but they had about 83% of patients that had positivity great with a score greater than one. In the 826, they saw that 89% of people were, were positive uh, with this PDL score one greater than one. I, I should note that as a clinician, I think this is quite confusing, and we rely on our pathologists to help us with this. And I am told that there's multiple different ways of counting PDL1 score depending on the uh, tumor site that you're talking about. And uh, the process is dependent on and different antibodies that are used and a specific machinery that is used. And the, and the testing that was used for this was using a 223C antibody clone on a specific machine and requires sort of certification of testing and then is counted in a slightly different way than scores counted in lung cancer, for example. So uh, there's some nuances in, in that that as, we as clinicians need to know about and, and to think about when we are contemplating using these drugs and how and when we get a biopsy. So how can you monitor for this parameter? Is there, are there certain points in the treatment pathway? I think most of us would probably... And I don't know how this is going to pan out over the next while, but um, it doesn't seem like it's something you're going to need to do up front when you do initial therapy, but you need enough tissue to do this testing on. And I think it has to be on tissue. You can't rely on cytology for this. And you can't go back and get a 
sample in a cider radiation field. So if radiated tissue doesn't is not a good sample for this. So I think we need to sort of be cognizant of that. And, and so when we are getting our initial diagnosis, we need to make sure uh, we have a good biopsy. Because sometimes when you've got a big cancer, you'll take a biopsy and you'll get, it looks like a cancer, you know it's a cancer, you use a standard cervical biopsy forceps, and unless you go deep into the tissue, you end up with just pre-invasive disease, and you end up treating on that because you know that it's a cancer and all everything else suggests it is. But it may be worthwhile actually getting a small leap specimen at that time to get a good tissue sample so you've got some in the bank so you can get this testing done later on. Because otherwise, you may be looking at metastatic disease in a periotic area, in a lung or somewhere else that you need to get a core biopsy on to actually test for the patient. So it'd be better to have a bigger sample initially if, if it isn't a patient that's had surgery and then recurred after surgery, bearing in mind that they're going to get surgery, then radiation, and then chemotherapy for their second recurrence, most probably. Right. So it seems like getting the sample in a timely way is, is one of the challenges. And what are some of the other possible challenges with pdl one testing? I think that there is that challenge that your pathologist needs to be comfortable with doing this and being trained on, on this particular methodology. Um, I know in our center, the pathology has been trained, but we're also using the standard test that was in the trials as a sort of validation test as we go through this. And I don't sure how many samples they'll need to do to validate that, but um, there's some internal validation that centers are going to have to do about this. And these are small volumes of patients in any one center. And in your center, what sort of percentage are you seeing that are positive? Well, I, I, I can't really give you a percentage at the moment because of course. We're, we're early days in this. So, um, yeah. uh, you know, I, I do know there's yeah, recent cases that are positive. Yeah. So we, we would anticipate, I don't, I don't see anything reason why it should be different from that 80, 80, 89%. So somewhere between 80 and 80 and 90% is going to be positive, I would anticipate. So in terms of the immunotherapies, uh, which ones have been examined in metastatic cervical cancer? Obviously, pembrolizumab. And, and uh, the other one that is sort of available on uh, compassionate access at the moment is semiplumab, devalumab. But, but obviously, th there is activity in this disease process, and, uh, and hopefully there'll be uh, uh, more, more options for our patients as time goes by. So in terms of where we are with these agents, what have some of the recent studies examining them shown us? Maybe you could discuss some of the results of some key yeah. trials. So, I mean, I think... Um, if you go back sort of to the um, the Keynote 158 trial, um, which was the BASKET trial, and that um, that basically showed there was a response rate of 12.2% to 14% in recurrent or metastatic disease. So that was pretty reasonable and enough to sort of recommend usage um, in the States, but it wasn't enough to, to get approval in Canada. And, and I believe in that particular trial, there wasn't much adenocarcinomas in that trial. So, I mean, it didn't give us much information about that. So some of the initial recommendations didn't include adenocarcinomas. Whereas in the keynote 826, there was 617 patients and uh, randomized, of which 548 had a pdl one score greater than one. That was at 89%. And they were randomized to platinum-based therapy with chemotherapy with either pembrolizumab or, or placebo, plus or minus bevacizumab. I believe about 30 to 40% of patients got bevacizumab in the trials, which is significant, and they were then, then followed. So they, uh, in their trial, they had 76% squamous cell cancers, um, which is about what we would expect in, 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 in clinical practice in Canada. So they saw 
they randomize these patients and then they follow them as, as you would do with regular imaging and, and uh, clinical examinations. And they saw um, in the patients that had a score greater than one, the progression-free survival at 12 months was 45% versus uh, 34% in the placebo arm with a hazard ratio of 0.62 and confidence intervals, which were pretty tight at 0.5 to 0.77. So um, they did They did sort of, they put all comers in, they saw the same sort of response and they also saw a better response um, with a hazard ratio of 0.58 if the uh, score was greater or equal to 10. If you then looked at their overall survival, at 12 months, the overall survival was 75.3% versus 63%. And at 24 months was 53% versus 41%. So if you sort of means there's a significant difference, um, and, you know, in, in those rates compared to what we've been doing with carboplatin and taxol, uh, and also to to uh, to, uh, to doing nothing or with cisplatinum as we we're doing many many years ago. So a significant advantage here, and the hazard ratios were about 0.64. Uh, with confidence intervals of 0.5 to 0.81. So a good response in those patients that had a CPS score greater than one. And if it was greater than 10, it was even better than that. So I think this was a uniformly positive. You can get your thumb test on. You can see the gap between the survival curves um, and uh, a welcome addition to our armamentarium in, in this disease. The other trial that is out there is the simiplumab, um, and this was published in uh, February of this year. This is simiplumab versus chemotherapy for recurrent disease, post platinum based chemotherapy. So these patients actually had carboplatin taxol or other therapies, and then on their second or so recurrence, they were randomized to further chemotherapy versus the simiplumab. And uh, they saw, again, saw and a benefit in this patient population with our overall survival benefit, um, with uh, median overall survival being 11 months versus eight months in the uh, squamous cell carcinoma and 13 months versus seven months with adenocarcinoma. So um, overall about 12 versus 8.5. So another immunotherapy that uh, showed an advantage. And it's always interesting when you look at these survival curves and we look think of this population and how we see them. There's very, very, very few long-term survivors in any of their clinical practice in, in this patient group. But in the trials, there is always a tale of patients that seem to be alive at sort of two, three years and the continuing separation of the survival curve. So you might, you know, you always hope when you treat somebody, is there going to be somebody that responds really well to immunotherapy and they can carry on for a very long period of time um, and, and who knows what comes down the line, but um, it, there is a hope that you might get a lot of patients that survives longer than you would normally see. Right. Yes. Now that's very encouraging. And so thinking about these different trials and the data that has come out so far, which of the studies do you feel might impact clinical practice in Canada and how so? So I think as we go, as we sort of go in the early days of immunotherapy in, in cervical cancer, I think the number one thing is we want to give the best therapy to the patients when they are most able to tolerate it and they're going to get the best response rate. So I think from my perspective, I think using pembrolizumab with chemotherapy at their first metastatic recurrence or non-irradiable non uh, recurrence um, is probably the best, best bang for the buck, shall we say. Uh, and uh, it's, it's going to be the, the one thing we think about in that setting. 
Now, if we've got patients that have had chemotherapy already, I think we would all like access to immunotherapy in, in that setting for a, a second recurrence and, and using it on its own may be beneficial. Um, and, and what is available at the moment might be the smiplumab uh, um, or, or was available um, through compassionate access. So, so we, you know, we do need some consistent access to these drugs so that patients can probably off, be offered them once in a course of disease. Um, and hopefully there will be other options that come down so that we can use the chemotherapy with, uh, immune, immune, uh, with pembrolizumab initially and then have something else later on as a second recurrence because um, again that's going to be a real challenge yeah for sure for sure so what is the next step in ensuring patients with metastatic disease have access to these therapies i think we all so i think i mean i think that's a challenge at the moment uh, it's going through health canada for approval and we have to hope and and i think we understand there's an unmet need here there's a significant unmet need and it's and it's a significant in, in young women as well so I'm hopeful that that will go through all the economic processes and then it'll be approved in all provinces and then and, and then go to INS in Quebec and, and then we'll all have access to it via the provinces. And then, you know, we need to make sure that women who have recurrent disease are seeing somebody that knows that these are therapies and knows that this is becoming a standard of care. Um, so they get offered appropriate therapy and then and then get the appropriate testing. So I think we need to be sort of centralization of care, as is done in most gynecological oncology patients, is beneficial in that we all hopefully um, uh, are on a similar understanding of the disease process and what are the options are. So I think that that will happen very quickly because I think we all understand the challenges of recurrent metastatic cervical cancer and the devastating effect that it has on young women. And, and older women. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Bentley. Is there anything else you want to add on this topic you think we should bring up here? I, I, think, I think sort of the, the, the number one thing when I look at this is sort of, yeah, we need to think about this, but we probably need to think about this right from the beginning. I don't think we need to get the pdl one testing done right away, but we need good tissue samples so that we can then uh, use that in the future for patients uh, so that, we, so that we, we know where we're going if we get a recurrence. So uh, you know, if you've got somebody that's coming in with a stage 3C disease, yeah, you, you, know, you, know, you know that a percentage of the time you're going to go down this road. So uh, uh, make sure you've got a good tissue sample. Mm, that's a really good point. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Bentley, for this really informative talk. I think it's been really helpful for our listeners, and I really appreciate you coming today. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be with you today.